Welcome to Kindled Podcast. I'm your host, Haley Williams, and this is the show where we talk about work, motherhood, and the grace we need for both. We are making and being made. Come join us. Hello, and welcome back to Kindled. This is episode 88, and I'm your host, Haley Williams. Today, I'm going to be chatting with Felicia Masonheimer all about progressive Christianity. This is a topic that I have been learning a lot about myself, and Felicia has been someone that I have actually learned a ton from just through her Instagram stories and highlight videos, because it's something that she's been learning about too. So I guess that's just a trend. We're all learning a lot about progressive Christianity, and that's no accident. It's because we are seeing it and hearing it more every day. It's becoming part of kind of the cultural narrative, honestly, in America. And a lot of very popular speakers and teachers are shifting in that direction. So I think it's essential and crucial for us as moms raising the next generation of believers and of humans to know the truth so that we can communicate, uh, you know, and, and clearly help our kids even decipher the truth from the lies. This is just an awesome episode and I can't wait for you to hear it. So I'm just going to get right into it. This is my chat with Felicia Masonheimer. Felicia, welcome to Kindled. Hi, Haley. Thanks for having me. Thank you for chatting with me on this afternoon. I would love for you to introduce yourself to listeners who have not heard of you and tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. So my name is Felicia Masonheimer, and I am a Bible teacher and public theologian. I think that's the best way to describe what I do. Essentially, I engage with ideas surrounding Christianity and defending it in today's culture, So when I'm teaching the Bible, it's mainly from an apologetics standpoint or a standpoint of how to defend your faith, how to ask the right questions and engage with people who don't share our belief system. So we talk a lot about discernment, about filtering ideas that we're reading in different books across denominations, and we learn how to pull out what's true and recognize what's good and also recognize what's not consistent with the gospel. So we have a lot of fun learning, okay, what is this person teaching and what's this person teaching and how can we understand what this means for us in our Christian life? Mm, yeah, it's so important to be able to do today. And I think a lot of my listeners I know are wanting to learn and grow in this area because it's just, it's becoming more and more apparent that we are no longer in a Christian nation. And the majority of the people out there, even labeling themselves as a Christian are not necessarily preaching something that would align with scripture. And so we're, we're really just having to be on guard more than ever. And just aware of, you know, what are the messages we're taking in and hearing all around us and being more discerning in our everyday life than I think we we used to have to be, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, I'm grateful for your your insight here. Before we get started, what does motherhood look like for you? And can you introduce us to your family? Sure. So I am married five and a half years to my husband, Josh. We met in college and we have two little girls. My oldest is four and my youngest is two just within the last month. And they are just so much fun. I never thought I'd be a girl mom, but having girls mm-hmm. has been amazing. I have three sisters, so I love fun. that they get to be have sisters. And we do homeschool. I mean, preschool is technically not really homeschooling, but mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. So yeah. we homeschool and we plan to homeschool all the way through. So it's been really fun to start that. 
That's so fun. And I was also homeschooled through sixth grade and then went to private school. But yeah, and my girls are just one year older than yours, five and three. And then this one. So fun. Okay, so so work, you uh, you told us that you're kind of a, you said public theologian. Is that the term? Mm -hmm. So what does work look like for you on a daily basis? So typically I do all my work in the afternoon. We're recording this in the afternoon on a weekday. And that's when almost all of my work is done between one and four on the weekdays during my girl's nap or quiet time, respectively. I do have a nanny one day a week so that I can get out of the house and really batch a lot of the work I do because I don't have a virtual assistant. So most of what I do is done by me. So managing all of my emails and social media contacts. I have a business, an essential oils business. So I also run that and then book sales and things like that. I have to run through, you know, the, Mm the hours that I have available. So I have a book coming out next year. So a lot of what happens with that, the writing of it, the editing, the communicating with the publisher, planning the marketing happens in those quick little work periods during the week. And I actually find that I get more done because I have less time Mm -hmm. than when I had eight hours a day, you know, to work because I have to be very specific about what I'm doing in that span of time. Only the essentials get done. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I I totally, I'm on the same page there. My girls are in preschool uh, a couple days a week, but yeah, I, I was, that was all summer for me was just, you know, one to three, whatever I could make happen. Maybe four, if they watch the iPad after they get up, you know, so it's just somehow make it happen. Yes, absolutely. That's fun. And then my last question before we kind of get into the topic is where are you seeing God's grace in your life? Oh man, I am so aware of this right now. This summer, I live in Northern Michigan. And so summer is like really the big deal. It's when Mm -hmm. we aren't covered in snow. So summer's awesome. And I thought I would join a soccer team this summer to meet other women. Mm -hmm. So I joined a women's league and in the fourth week, I broke my leg at the knee Mm -hmm. and went into surgery around the 4th of July to get a plate and eight screws and was on bed rest essentially for two months in a wheelchair or on my couch. And I've never gone through something that was that difficult. I mean, I've had two babies. I've had postpartum. This was so difficult on our whole family. And God's grace to me in that period of time was my husband, first of all, who then became both parents, cooked all the meals. You know, he just completely stepped up. But then our church community surrounded me and mowed our lawn, folded our laundry, made us meals, watched my kids, just came and supported us for that time because Josh still had to work his eight to five. Mm -hmm. So I just, God's grace came through them and through my husband and through my sister who quit her job and basically nannied my kids for eight weeks. Wow. Just, it was just beautiful. And it's so hard to be in that place of receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so humbling, mm-hmm. but it gave me such a glimpse of God's grace. It, and I, in one sense, I would not do it over because it was painful and really, really hard. But in another sense, I know that I'm forever changed by it. So I'm grateful yeah. that it happened. Yeah, that that's amazing. Like seeing the the actual, like literal body of Christ, you know, almost like, like yeah. your body being broken and limited. And then them coming in and just taking Mm -hmm. over. That's so cool. 
wow. I, yeah, I, I followed that a little bit. It was just like, I don't understand even practically, like, how do you, cause you, I mean, you have little kids, like you're in a wheelchair. How do you even like do basic stuff, like help them go to the bathroom or, you know, like you don't, you like, don't, you just like, can't. Yeah. It was, it was so shocking to me yeah. how much it took. Cause if you're on crutches, which I was, I couldn't put any weight on it for about 10 weeks. Wow. You're not able to carry anything. Right. So my daughter, my three-year-old started like making lunch. <laughs> I would teach her like, okay, get the bread make the sandwich to carry yeah. it to your sister. Like, cause I couldn't really carry anything. Yeah. It wow. was a really wild season. <laughs> that is crazy, man. That, yeah, that's, that's incredible. I guess that probably built a lot of patience in you <laughs> as well. For sure. Well, I'm thankful that you're out of that now and probably getting back to some normalcy. So kind of getting into the topic, we're going to chat about progressive Christianity. And this is something, this is actually how I first found you. When I first found you maybe a month ago on Instagram, this is what you were talking a lot about it because you took a class and maybe you can share with us about that in a minute. But before we kind of get into it, can you tell us what is progressive Christianity? Because we hear this term kind of starting to come up a lot more um, or hear people labeling themselves as progressive and it's a little hard to understand what exactly is meant by that. So could you kind of give us some context? Yes, absolutely. So when we use the term progressive, the first thing we have to, in relation to Christianity, we have to be sure to articulate the difference between progressive politics and progressive theology. So when someone says they're a progressive Christian, you actually have to stop them and figure out whether they're talking about their political views or whether they're talking about their theological views. Because mm. a lot of people, when, when they use this term, it can go one of those two directions. And today in this podcast, we're talking about progressive theology, not progressive politics. So right. Progressive politics would be more related to issues of race and social justice. Not always. There's a lot of nuance there. But, you know, they're going to be talking a lot about abortion and things like that. Progressive theology is directly related to the nature of scripture, the nature of Jesus, sin, the atonement, and the gospel. So it's mm -hmm. it's all related to doctrines of Christianity. It has nothing to do with politics. It influences someone's politics, but we're not talking about who somebody voted for in the last election. <laughs> right, right. So that's the first thing we need to define. The second thing is progressive Christianity, just like conservative Christianity, is on a spectrum. And so not all progressive Christians believe the same things, just like not all conservative Christians believe the same things. There's a range. And so Another reason that if you are talking to somebody who uses this term, you need to ask them to define what they actually believe that mm -hmm. term means in order to have a productive conversation. So third thing, I'm actually on the progressivechristianity.org website with their eight points. And these eight points kind of sum up what progressive Christianity is about. I'm not going to read all of them, but kind of try to mm -hmm. summarize them for you. The biggest thing with progressive Christianity at its core, true progressive Christianity, is that following the teachings of Jesus is more about an experience than it is about an objective truth. Mm. So Jesus maybe was divine, according to them, 
Or maybe he was just a really great man who showed us the kind of life that we should lead on earth. They believe that the teachings of Jesus are just one way to reach God, and they aren't the only way to reach God. Another aspect is they're going to question a lot of scripture and its authority because we conservative Christians, and again, that's painting with a broad brush, but I'm going to use that term for this podcast. Yeah. Conservative Christians would say Jesus himself said he was the way, the truth, and the life. So how can we even have this conversation about Jesus' way being only one of many ways? It goes down to the authority of scripture. They believe that scripture was not necessarily inspired, that it was edited by the early church, and that a lot of the things that indicate Jesus was divine were added in later so Mm -hmm. that a church could be established. They believe Jesus did not come to earth to establish a quote unquote new religion, but that he simply wanted to show the path to God by living that example and loving everyone. So Mm -hmm. ultimately, if you really want to sum up true progressive Christianity, Jesus was a good man. Maybe he was divine. Maybe he wasn't. He's an example for how to live and love people. His teachings should be followed, but they're not the only way. And their community should include all people, regardless of whether they're questioning, whether they're atheists, whether they're actually Christian, whatever their sexual orientation, all of them are included. And there is no objective truth regarding scripture, quite frankly. Would they say even if someone does not want to be included, they are included because they are a child of God, like by definition, would they just say, no, you're part of the family because Jesus died for everyone? No, they would say, they would say yes and no. They would say that if somebody chooses to be Buddhist or Hindu or new age, they will find God through that path. Mm. But everybody is in the family of God. So they don't have to be a Christian to be in the family of God. Christianity is just one way into that family. So it's 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 like universalism. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you were talking about how you mentioned they don't believe basically in the inerrancy of scripture and they believe that it was not inspired by God himself that the, these documents were maybe edited, maybe written They're you know, they're written in a historical context. Therefore they may or may not apply to us. Like for instance, Paul's writings, you know, people have big problems with Paul because he's a sexist and all of these things. And, oh, well in that, in that context, like this is why he was saying this about women major issue. You know, people have a lot of issues with that in general. I have seen arguments around, you know, the historicity of the text being questioned because of the fact that it was written by men and written, you know, by all, like all men, you know? And so there's like, there's fundamental problems with it. Is that, you know, would you qualify kind of that as a progressive Christianity teaching? Is that coming from progressive Christianity or is that just maybe something that they kind of like add into the, into the bucket? Yeah, it's for sure something that comes up in what they they converse and talk about. I think it's a question, the question of authorship and the question of all the books being authored by men is a question that even conservatives ask. And it's a valid question that should be explored and, and asked about pretty easily answered when you understand the historical context of when the right. Bible was written as written in a patriarchal culture where mostly the men were educated. So naturally mm-hmm. the men would be the ones to be writing these documents. doesn't mean that women weren't valued, right. but that they were in a culture that didn't yeah. facilitate that. But yes, what a progressive Christian would see in that is this is a problem 
And we need to figure out a way to answer this. But the answer to it is that scripture isn't inerrant, isn't inspired. And Paul was a sexist and maybe he didn't even author some of these texts. They'll say half of the letters in the New Testament that are supposedly authored by Paul actually aren't. Hmm. They'll divide it up. And again, I'm speaking in very general terms here. This is progressive Christianity at its core. You will meet progressive Christians who say, no, I absolutely believe that Paul authored you know, sure. all of the things that we believe. So there is a range, but when you look at what is being mainly taught in this camp, that would be true okay. of their ideas. So if the Bible isn't inerrant and it isn't the inspired word of God, it's really just good in as far as we see it has value morally. Okay. Which then prompts the question, like, where is that moral framework coming from? What determines what is good or helpful based on like what Jesus said? Like you could then say, well, some of what Jesus said is really great and others is not. Would they also, um, do the same with any other religion? Like for instance, the Quran, would they do that with the teachings of Joseph Smith and just say, all of these people will have things we could maybe learn from that would kind of fall into their, their line of thinking. Yes. So because of the nature, basically because they have worked themselves into a universalist argument in order to include everyone, in order to get rid of the inclusive exclusivity of Christianity, as I call it. The door is Mm -hmm. open to all, but there's only one door. Because they want to get rid of that, they then have to give credence to all of these other religions. They have to say that there's validity to all of these. And that you can just go through those. And they also have to acknowledge that some of those might be might have things wrong with them, just like the Bible has things wrong with them. So mm-hmm. I took a progressive class this last summer, mm-hmm. um, an eight-week-long class at a local Methodist camp. Now, not all Methodists are this progressive, but this particular mm-hmm. Methodist camp is. And when we would meet, this came up a lot that, well, there are Muslims and there are Hindus and there are Buddhists who follow their own ancient documents and it it brings them to God and it teaches them about the divine. But are these documents completely trustworthy? Maybe, maybe not. So ultimately they have no objective framework and you end up talking in circles because there really is no saying that this is right and this is wrong. Right. How do you even have a class on that? Honestly, that's my (laughs) next question. Yeah. What is there to teach? (laughs) And honestly, by the fifth or sixth week, we actually had people, because I I was there to listen. I really wasn't saying a ton. Mm -hmm. We did have people in the class saying, okay, you know, I would align with this viewpoint, but even I'm starting to wonder, like, how do we know anything is true because we've just talked ourselves out of truth. Right. We have no line in the sand here. And so ultimately it came down to feelings. I feel closest to God in the Christian tradition and I feel like sin is problematic and I don't like that concept. So I don't believe in the atonement. I feel like seeking God through music is Mm -hmm. the most fulfilling for me. And so that's why I'm doing this because Mm. it makes me feel closer to the divine, but I don't like these other things. That was, that was the actual terminology used in the class. I don't like this. I don't find this comfortable. (laughs) So I am not going to accept it instead of actually saying, okay, now I have nothing guiding me through life except my feelings. That's a pretty Mm -hmm. risky way to live. Right. 
So I need to figure out, you know, what, what am I basing my truth on? A lot of them were just willing to take that risk. Like I would even ask how, how do you even know, how can you even trust your feelings? How do you know your feelings are real? Or how do you even know you're real? I mean, like this is just, it gets into such a messy metaphysical, like just nightmare of confusion because there's really, uh, there's no, there's nothing can be known. If you can't know anything, like, are, are we even here? Are we even talking? Is this just, <laughs> are we imagining ourselves? Like, are we even having a conversation? You know what I mean? Like it's, and, and that's where I guess the fallacy of the thinking shows itself to be a fallacy because, you know, they are taking certain things and saying, and, and uh, their, their presuppositions, some assumptions that they have to have in order to even have this conversation exist. And so those are based in something that they believe to be true, even though they're arguing there is no truth. There is no absolute truth. There is only right. like, what is my truth subjectively? Or your truth right. subjectively. And how do we even know that their truth is true? Like right. one of the well, things it's not. that we, they it's would not. say it's not, right? They would just, right. yeah. Right. So, you know, I feel closer to the divine going about it this way. And mm-hmm. I think we should be kind to people. Well, why should we be kind to people? Mm-hmm. Tell me why. Give me a real, because it, you know, it becomes an endless spiral where we don't have any reasoning yeah. any foundation for even the moral good that they want to accomplish because they are very compassionate people. I will give them this credit is one of their big reasons that a lot of people end up going this way is they have really poor spiritually abusive experiences in yeah. fundamental churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why a lot of people end up in this camp. And most of the people we listen to on our lectures had come out of hyper-fundamentalist, spiritually abusive churches. And yeah. they reacted against that into this progressivism. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, this is clearly not aligning with scripture. I need to find out what, how did God really reveal himself in scripture? They just changed scripture to yeah. fit what they wanted to see. And swung the pendulum way to the other side instead of being like, you know, that's not true. And that's clearly not what God meant. Let's find the truth. Seeking the truth. It's just like you said, have said reacting against. So it's formed. It's almost a theology built as a reaction, which is something you've said to another theology, yes, which cannot be trusted because it's only, it's only kind of an equal and opposite reaction. It's not actually rooted in anything substantial. Listen up, mamas. I want to tell you about something that I know you will love. Valmarie Papers Yearly Prayer Journal is a simple monthly format that helps you pray daily. If prayer time looks like 10 to 15 minutes of fighting distractions and maybe squeezing in a few minutes of actual prayer before the kids wake up or it's time to head to work, this journal is for you. What if 2020 was the year that you made it a priority to find focus and power in your prayer life like never before? That's something I want, and that's why I'm going to be grabbing this journal, because I need all the help I can get. You can grab the 2020 version before it sells out by heading to valmariepaper.com slash yearly. Right. Yeah. And for us now, as Orthodox believers, the danger is to do the exact same thing. As Mm -hmm. progressive Christianity rises in influence, and it will, we have to be on guard that we don't look at that and then react to the other other extreme. We are to return to the word, preach what is true mm-hmm. with truth and grace because 
that's the thing that drives most people away from the truth of the gospel is the ungraciousness of the mm-hmm. person who is teaching it. And God can use anything to draw people, sure. but he wouldn't emphasize grace so much if it wasn't so important to the articulation yeah. of the gospel. Yeah, that's a great point. And that is like, I feel that tension and that that pull towards, yeah, just such a strong reaction to something that's so kind of blatantly flies in the face of what I know to be true that, yeah, it's real easy to just get kind of up in arms and like, this is insane. Like, are you kidding me? You know, and, and not approaching them with grace, like you're talking about, which, which clearly, even though, and, and this is, I think maybe would be helpful to talk about, even though they've got this label of Christianity on them, which is maybe why we feel such a, you know, such a strong rising up of like reaction to that. like you know, you're, you're taking my, you're taking this identity that I have as a believer and a follower of Christ. And then you're totally turning it upside down into something that it's not. The reality is like, if someone is holding to a lot of the tenets you described, like Jesus is not the only way, all of these things, they're not actually probably saved. They're, they're probably right. not actually following him. And so approaching them as you would anyone else who, you know, is blind in sin or anyone else, mm-hmm. you know, who has not had their eyes opened it's helpful to just kind of almost in a sense, like for me, maybe remember just because someone says I'm a Christian, here's what it means. Doesn't mean they are. Right. Exactly. And something I, I try to be extremely sensitive to when dealing with and talking with progressive Christians is they're overly sensitive to a lack of grace Mm -hmm. and pushy truth more than really anybody else. You're mm-hmm. not going to get anywhere with them saying, well, that's ridiculous or, you know, but the Bible says you have to remember where where are they coming from? What's their framework? And understanding that and hearing them out is not an endorsement of their belief. Mm-hmm. I think in conservative Christianity, we have this idea that to hear someone, to listen to them and ask them questions means we're endorsing what they, we, we, they believe. Yeah. And you're not. All you're doing is saying, explain to me your thought process here. And as somebody's talking that out to you, they may suddenly realize the flaws in their own argument, the flaws in their own belief system. I've seen this happen where if you say, okay, well, that's interesting. Now I don't completely agree with you, but let me hear a little bit more. Mm -hmm. As they talk that out and you raise questions, like, do you mind if I ask you a question? Where does your objective moral authority come from? That causes them to pause and think without feeling angry, threatened, and emotional. When we're having these conversations, it's not a threat against our identity. Our identity in Christ is secure. We, Our gospel is secure. We don't need to worry about any of that. The Holy Spirit is still doing his work. So when we're having these conversations with people, we can just ask questions and kind of lead them to wonder, oh, where does my moral authority come from? Why do I believe this about the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. How important would you say a knowledge of church history and the facts uh, that kind of back up like the evidence that we have for, for Christ having actually come, Christ having actually died, actually risen again, these eyewitness accounts in the in scripture how important is all of that to this discussion and and i haven't taken a class so i don't know 
I've heard other people who have kind of gone through something similar to what you went through, or we mentioned, you know, Elisa Childers, she actually, her, her church originally took them, her through this curriculum that was kind of a deconstructionist curriculum. And she ended up actually really questioning her faith and being at this place of like, I don't know why I believe this. And I think history had a lot to do with it there. And, and like the, the claims that there isn't evidence and stuff, like how, how should we think about that? And how much do we need to be building up our own understanding of that in order to kind of combat these claims? I think it's super important in today's culture for Christians to educate themselves on a an apologetic for their faith, which is a defense for their faith. Um, as Peter said, always be ready and prepared to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. Today, that's even more important. And not a defense that's angry, as we talked about earlier, but just a rational, logical, gracious defense. Mm-hmm. And the more you know, the more you will feel confident having those conversations. And so you don't have to know it all right now, but progressively educating yourself as you're growing in faith, as as you're interacting with your coworkers and your family will help you feel so much more confident. And so Lee Strobel, A Case for Christ, really great breakdown of what we believe and what evidence there is. Gary Habermas, great apologetics for the resurrection. He's the leading resurrection theologian. Hmm. These people will give you information that will help you. And then church history, my top recommendation for that, for people who are beginners to church history is church history in plain language by Bruce Shelley. These materials will help give confidence. One thing that I think with church history is important because progressive Christianity often questions authorship and changes history. So in my particular class, there was a lot of accusing St. Augustine of inventing the atonement or inventing these core doctrines to Christianity. When if you look at Judaism and you look at the rich history of Christianity, which goes back, you know, 4,000 years before Christ, atonement was not made up in 400 AD. But you have to know church history to know that and be able to argue back when somebody sounds like they're authoritative and they have these cool facts when their facts are off. And so I'm sitting in this class and I don't know, he did not make it up in 400 AD. Isn't that in the Bible? How could that, how could that claim even be made? Like for Christ died for the ungodly. I I mean, I'm just like, there's so many verses that seem like they would evidence atonement, but I'm, I'm sure they've, they've thought of that. And you can go all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy to see the atonement ritual and how Christ fulfilled it. Hebrews talks about it. So the more you know, the more you can say, so have you considered all of these things that we see that predate Augustine? Mm -hmm. Tell me how you explain that away. Mm -hmm. Other things with church history, again, with the authorship issue and the inspiration of scripture, when things were written, who wrote them, that's going to be important. And if you know history, it's easier to recognize when someone's rewriting it ultimately. Right. Right. Yeah. So you said, tell me, tell me what you, tell me how you explain that. Or another question, like if we can just talk even like practically, are there, are there questions that when we don't have necessarily an argument back, but we are trying to understand, like you said, what are they really, where, where, how can I get to the kind of the core of this argument? Are there some questions we could ask that would be 
good to just kind of spur on conversation. Like, what do you make of this? You know, like, or like, Hey, like, well, you know, I'm thinking about in the old Testament, how this and this had to be done before somebody could enter into the temple. And then even beyond that, there was even more requirements entering to the Holy of Holies. And what do you make of that? Like, are there, you know, is there any other good questions that would be helpful for someone to kind of like jot down and just have in their back pocket? Any kind of open-ended question, like you just said, non-threatening, just asking, what do you think about this? How how do you explain this particular aspect of mm-hmm. scripture or Christianity? And I think more than anything, maybe right in your pocket, have a note to yourself. It's not my job to save this person. Mm. (laughs) That is what gets us all anxious and riled up. We think we've got to make the sale on the gospel. And it's why we get so mad at people who twist the gospel is we think this person's leading all these other people astray. Reality is the Holy Spirit is still at work. He is still at work. So remember that when having the conversation and when you start to get frantic and think you got to block this person, duct tape their mouth from sharing anything more (laughs) in the public sphere, that God is still sovereign. The Holy Spirit's still at work. And even in your conversation with them, he's at work. So you might not get an answer or get a conclusion or win the argument, so to speak, Mm -hmm. but you have given them some questions to think about and you've given them a gracious discussion with a conservative believer. That is something they've probably never experienced before. That alone will be more of a witness to a universalist slash progressive Christian than anything else that you do. Wow. That is such a powerful point because yeah, you're right. Like they're not they they probably have not encountered that like you said we are not we are not the holy spirit we cannot convict hearts and open spiritual eyes and so like to leave that to god and also recognizing do i think that there are not thousands of other conversations just like this happening all over the world and i can't be a part of all of them and god hasn't asked me to be the soul, you know, he didn't ask me to be Jesus. He didn't ask me to save the world. Like that is his job and he's in charge of outcomes and I can be obedient, you know, to love and, and loving does look like speaking the truth, but also looks like not trying to make the sale. Like you said, you know, that's a great point. Would you say there's like, is there any guidelines that you would give to, to people who maybe, you know, I mean, this might even be coming up in their families with friends from, church or friends from, you know, kids' schools or soccer teams, whatever, is there ever time to not engage in this conversation and just to listen or just to remain silent? This might just be a question of discernment, uh, you know, in in regards to like, where's the relationship at? But are there any, like, what have you learned, I guess, in your own pursuit of growing in and understanding of these beliefs and this whole system and engaging with people? Like, when is it wise to, to go ahead and like prompt and, and maybe open up more conversation? When is it wise not to? I think like you said, it has a lot to do with the level of the relationship. What's happening when the topic comes up, you know, if you're, if the person is just in passing or if you're like sitting down over coffee and can probe a little bit deeper, mm-hmm. you you might have someone in your life who makes a passing comment about like, well, you know, Jesus is, is the, it's not the only way to God. And mm-hmm. you're like standing in line and about to leave to somewhere else. That's probably not a good time. Right to try and have that conversation 
just to give that truth, you know? And that's where that trust walk comes in, where you were literally walking by the spirit, like Paul says in Galatians five and six, like if the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, I think of love, peace, and self-control being fruit of the spirit in our quest for a solid apologetic. And the Holy Spirit will work that in us as we listen to him. So in that moment, the fruit might be peace and self-control, as well as faithfulness to God, knowing that he is going to then give us another opportunity when we need it to talk to that person. And when that person comes back around, we can say, Hey, I remember you saying this last time we were together. And I'm curious what brought you to think that Mm -hmm. it's not your only shot. I think when we're in ourselves and we think it's all up to us, which is very easy to do, mm-hmm. that's when we start to get, like I said earlier, that frantic, like, I've got to say something now or I'm not a good evangelist type person. And instead saying, Lord, do you want me to say anything right now? And if you do, I need you to give me the words. And if he does, he'll give you the opportunity and he'll give you the words. There's a verse that Jesus said, and in context, he was talking about persecution, but I think it applies here as well. He said, you will be taken before authorities. Do not worry what you will say in that moment because the spirit will give you the words. Mm -hmm. And I think in this situation, the spirit will give you the words if you're walking in step with him and listening and asking, and if you're filling your mind with truth on a regular mm-hmm. basis, if you're in the word and you're filling yourself up. So he'll give you the discernment to know, talk to this person. Don't talk to this person right now. Right. You know, Not the time. Yeah. Yeah. Because also one thing, I just last thing I want to mention, we don't know where their hearts are at at that point. Yeah. The Lord's working on all of our hearts, right? I remember before I was saved, how I was starting to ask questions and be curious. But if somebody had come on to me too hard in that early stage, I probably would have just shut right down. But by the time the Lord softened my heart a little bit later on, that truth was easily received. So that missed opportunity might actually be God is still softening their heart to receive mm-hmm. a truth they're not ready to receive. So it might not be a missed opportunity after all. Yeah. And like you said, in the meantime, not giving fuel to the fire of their belief that all conservative Christians are angry and hateful and controlling, you know what I mean? Like, cause that, that might be the, the biggest risk to us, you know, in the, in those moments where we are not sensing an open door yet or not sensing a softened heart. And, and then you're just, you know, you kind of, you could, you could definitely be at risk of kind of ending that relationship on a bad note or just closing the door entirely. Yes. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about is, can you kind of explain the concept of a straw man? Because this idea that first I'm going to mischaracterize something and then I'm going to prove it wrong, you know? Yes. Yes. So if any of you took logic in high school or in middle school, you probably learned about logical fallacies and logical arguments and how we're supposed to craft an argument so that it's valid, a valid way to argue. This is rooted in Greek philosophy and it's excellent to study for apologetics. But one of the things that we talk about in logic is a fallacy, which means that somebody is basically coming up with an invalid argument or or invalidating their argument by how they're presenting their information. Mm-hmm. And a straw man fallacy is exactly what you just said, Haley. It's misrepresenting the other person, building a straw man, like a scarecrow, and then setting it on fire mm-hmm. and saying, see your argument doesn't work or this is a terrible idea because you believe X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. When in fact, they don't believe any of those things. 
And this happened a lot in the class that I took where they didn't yet know that I was a conservative Christian the first three or four weeks that I was there. So I was sitting in class and they would talk about evangelical Christians or more Orthodox Christians under the label, quote unquote, fundamentalist. Mm. And all of us, all of us who believe that Jesus really rose from the dead and that he was the son of a virgin and that he died on the cross for our sins were under this label fundamentalist. And they lumped in with that these extreme, angry, exclusive, unwilling to listen characteristics that weren't true for me as what they would call a fundamentalist. And finally, around the fourth week, I said, you know, honestly, I am what you guys would call a fundamentalist and I'm none of these things. And there are certain things you're saying, I believe that I don't believe. Um, and if you want to argue against what I believe, you've got to get it right because they wouldn't appreciate if I misrepresented them. Right. You know, so in order to have a conversation around these issues, we have to actually represent both sides fairly. And when I talk to a progressive believer, I I ask them, define your belief system for me first so I'm not misrepresenting you. And then let me tell you what I believe. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as you create that straw man, you just invalidated yourself. You you can't you can't have a have a solid argument. And it is a warning though to those of us Orthodox believers that we need to let whoever we're talking to define their belief system for us instead of saying, you believe X, Y, and Z, because that's what all progressive Christians believe. And that's not true. I had people messaging me when I took the progressive Christian class saying, I am a progressive Christian and I do not believe these things. I am not a universalist. And so again, it is a spectrum. Sure. But like you said, it's important to know when a straw man argument is happening. And we do see this a lot. I see it more on the progressive side because they have been burned by Mm. super fundamentalist, spiritually abusive situations. And so they just assume that all all Orthodox Christians think that way. Yeah. And like you said, being that it is a spectrum, the interesting thing is that you could have somebody like one of those people who messaged you and say, I am a progressive Christian. I don't believe this. The spectrum can shift without someone realizing it. So it can get further to the extreme progressive side, let's call that the left. It can get, it can go further to the left without them even realizing like they are now center, you know, they're now in this, they're now in the middle yep. and, and you, you <laughs> might not realize like actually to be progressive now means this, you are something else, you know? Yes. And so, so they really may not understand some of those realities. Yes. That's so true and important. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. The the whole straw man concept, and and I hear that talked about a lot by you know believers who are who are kind of engaging in conversations with progressive Christians and and around these ideas. And I just wanted to kind of clarify that for people. Um, do you have any final advice for the woman listening who is like, where do I go from here? What do I do with all of this? I mean, you obviously have a very strong grasp on your faith and what you believe. And you took a class, but I don't think you would recommend that everybody go take a class. <laughs> right. I, I do not. I think that was something that I was able to handle because of what I do. But I think for a lot of Christians, it would be very confusing and even mm-hmm. disconcerting. But what I would say is most of the tenants are right on 
the Progressive Christianity website. So if you go to progressivechristianity.org, there is a ton of information there. And when I'm teaching on discernment and teaching on um, apologetics, I always say, go directly to the person that you're arguing against and find out what they believe. So go to their website. They have their eight points right there. They have other information and you can get a general idea of what progressive Christianity at its core is teaching. And that will give you, I think, a little bit more information to work with and maybe a jumping off point to then return to the word, to return to trusted biblically orthodox teachers and see, okay, how do I answer this? How do I, you know, you could go read what John MacArthur says about Jesus being the only way, and you're going to get a really solid biblical answer on that, Mm -hmm. that would help you argue for Jesus exclusivity or Gary Habermas on the resurrection. Oh, here's Mm -hmm. what he says about the evidence for the resurrection. So you would then have a jumping off point to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, that's really helpful. I'll link everything that you mentioned, all those names and books in the show notes. And then one final question I just remembered, somebody asked me, she said, it's easy to talk about what something is, but can you tell us what it is not? So I don't know if she was getting at maybe like asking questions is fine. Having doubts is fine, but what is progress? What is not progressive Christianity? Is that, does that make sense? Yeah. I think you actually gave us a a really good jumping off point for that. Progressive Christianity does not like to have an answer for their questions. They like to have a lot of questions and not a lot of answers because answers are final. Answers are exclusive and answers are truth. And so you're not going to find a lot of solid, I know that this is true in progressive Christianity. You're not going to find a compelling gospel. That was something that we talked about a lot in the last few weeks in this class was this gospel is not compelling. I don't want to follow your Jesus because your Jesus is just another Gandhi. He's just Mm -hmm. another teacher. And if I want another teacher, there's a whole lot of other people I might want to listen to. Mm -hmm. What makes the gospel compelling is that it brings us a solution for lack of unity. It brings us a solution for our sin. There is no solution. There is no rescue from who I know myself to be with this model. Mm -hmm. But again, if you change sin, then there's no reason to think that you're not divine, really. There's the spark of the divine. So progressive Christianity is not going to give you solid truth. It's not going to give you real answers for your struggles with scripture. It's not going to direct you into unity with the body of Christ because it actually divides away from a lot of Christians. And it's not going to give you a high view of scripture. It's going to give you a view of scripture that is low, that treats it as just another ancient document, mm-hmm. might as well be Beowulf for all uh, for how it's treated. So you're going to come away with a very... I would say, uncertain outlook on life and eternity. And you really, when I came away from the class and really tried to enter into what they were experiencing, I turned to my friend and I said, you know, I'd be scared to live life this way. I would be scared because it's literally all up to me in the end. Wow. That all makes sense. As you were talking, I was reminded of, there was an episode where Elisa Childers had a conversation with Lisa Gunger on this podcast, Unbelievable. 
And as they were talking, Elisa was giving a really beautiful apologetic for Christ as the only way. And she was like, imagine that there's this chasm between the cliff you're standing on and the other side, except the side that you're on is desolate and dry and you are going to die there. There's no food. There's no water. And someone lowers down a bridge and says, here you go. You can walk across. I'm not going to say, well, why is that the only way for me to walk across? I'm going to be so grateful and thankful that this beautiful bridge has been offered to me. I'm going to walk across like gladly and gratefully. And she was just kind of like presenting this beautiful, you know, this awesome picture for, for me really of what Christ has done for us. And Lisa was like, that's really beautiful. That's so beautiful that you have found that. And that that is how you see things. And, and she literally just said, I'm not going to argue the validity of your points. That's valid. That's beautiful. She just kept saying beautiful. And really it was like, okay, so you don't have a problem with it. But at the same time, you're saying that there is more than one way. And so Elisa was like, that's a truth claim. Like that is a truth claim to yeah. say that there is only, that, that, that there is not truth. That's a truth claim. You can't get outside of it because we live in this universe yeah. created by a God who is the author of truth and the inventor of our reality. And we can't reason our ways. We can't reason our way out of that system. Our minds are not, you know, it just doesn't work. It's impossible. And so it was just, but it did leave the whole conversation feeling very unfinished and very like, there was no finality. There was no conclusion. There was no, well, we just disagree. It was like Elisa saying one thing and Lisa Gunger saying, yeah, I accept that. And that's great for you. And, but at the same time, disagreeing, it's like, I don't understand. (laughs) I was just like, how, but this is, but this is actually where you're left. You are left in this state of total unfinished. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's Mm -hmm. kind of, would you say that's how you felt at the end of the class? Like there was kind of, uh, where do I go from here? Oh, well, nowhere. there's nowhere to go. (laughs) And honestly, I, I said, I have more respect for a devout Buddhist or a devout Muslim who actually is honest about their truth claim than I do about this wow. because at least they're standing on something yeah. They're I believe they're wrong. Yeah. But at least they're saying, no, look, this is the way because that's what the teaching is like. And yeah. I said this in the class that, you know, these, the actual texts of these religions teach that they are the only way. So it's technically in this class, we're being untrue to Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Christianity because yeah. each of them say that they're the only way. So how can we yeah. be so proud as to say, actually, no, all of these are the way. We're going to change what these people said and make it into something that it's not. That's a logical fallacy in yeah. itself. Yeah. It doesn't make, it doesn't work. No, it's you take a, take away for a second like all of the Christian moral claims and logically and philosophically we're not operating in any that does not operate in the world of common sense. No. It doesn't. It's literally emotion and experience driven. Yeah. And and I've at. I've said I've used this example before but well my truth is that what is good and right and moral for me is to come into your house neighbor across the street and to murder your family. That's my truth. That's my moral, that's my moral framework. 
Like, why shouldn't I do that? You know what I mean? Like if you, and I don't, I'm not saying that that would be an effective argument for them. Cause they would go, Oh my gosh. Well, you know, as long as it's actually, she did say, Lisa said, as long as you're not infringing upon the rights of someone else, which then, okay, well, how do you define infringing? Because, you know, yeah. and, and it's, that's it's a anything, domino effect. Yeah, it, it really is. So what, back when you told me that you asked, or you said, actually, Hey, I am a progress or I am a evangelical and I don't believe these things that you're saying, I believe. So how about you find out what I really believe? What did they say to that? What was the response? Well, they were shocked that I was there. And that's <laughs> yeah. it goes back to what we talked about earlier about how like they're so used to conservative Christians not even wanting to engage them and just mm-hmm. shutting down or attacking them mm-hmm. that to have them be in the room with, was shocking to them. Yeah. And they were very welcoming hmm. to me, but I think it was partially the shock that I would even engage with them. And I was yeah. very kind in how I presented, you know, like you need to understand my side. Like I, yeah. I tried to be very gentle um, in how I said that. Their response was essentially like, you just don't get it yet. Mm. You don't understand yet. Some of them just were like this person, you know, they just wrote me off as brainwashed. The, mm-hmm. the way they talked about it implied that others were very curious. And actually I found out last week that one of the members of the class who my friend and I had invited to church the last day mm-hmm. actually attended his church for the wow. last two weeks. So that's super praise that he was curious enough to actually come and attend an evangelical wow. church hear the gospel. So they were curious and interested and intrigued, but they were also very closed off to exclusivity because their their way of understanding it is like, well, you're saying that people go to hell. And we could open up a whole other can of worms here because a lot of them are also reacting against extreme determinism or mm. um, Calvinism, quite mm-hmm. frankly. There were quite a few Presbyterians in there who were like, I can't, I cannot swallow that God is electing people to salvation and reprobating others. And that's a whole other conversation. So Mm -hmm. there were a lot of reasons that they were skeptical, but I I am glad at least for the experience for me and for their exposure, you know, that my, my friend and I are both Orthodox evangelical believers and that they got to experience that Mm -hmm. not in a negative sense, I hope. Yeah. And I would say like, if anything, like that, you kind of shedding light on that. Some of the people who are there, I mean, that's surprising to me that even Presbyterians were there. Like, wow, that's a, that's a far cry from Presbyterianism, you know? And yet that to me is a really strong argument for allowing people to ask questions and struggle and deal with their doubts inside the church and not being like, no, 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 don't ask questions, accept blindly, you know, mm-hmm. ask like it, engaging the, you know, for, for us to be open to engaging people in conversation within our churches, instead of forcing them outside of our churches to go have those experiences or go find the answers they're looking for. Because if we really believe we have the truth, if we really believe that scripture is true, then we can trust it to lead us. You know, we can trust it to lead us home. We don't have to be so afraid of those questions or those doubts that may come up. As long as, like you said, we are not ending, we are not seeking to find uncertainty. We are seeking answers. If the end goal is to find an answer, we can entertain these these conversations like openly, you know? Yes. Yes. And the, the curriculum we did was called living the questions and, and they sounds terrible. I know they said over and over, 
we don't have to have answers. We're just here to live the questions and to just live in this tension of questioning. And I just thought, okay, it's good to have questions. And the questions brought up in this class are valid questions that should be asked. Was Paul a sexist? What do we believe about creation? Don't just swallow that blindly. Wrestle with it. Dig it out. But like you said, if this was happening in the church, they would not have been in this class sitting here going, I don't get answers in my church and my church yeah. just does this and they don't tell me why. And right. I'm just supposed to believe and pray and assume that prayer does something. They had all these years of piled up questions that no one had answered. And then they get to this class and they tell them, just live with the questions. There are no answers. That's the answer. You know, yeah. once again, a truth claim, the answer is there are no answers. And yeah. that's not satisfactory for the human heart. Ultimately, I really don't believe it is. Well, imagine, I mean, living with the questions, I think we could palette. What about dying with questions? Mm. That's what we're really like. That's when the rubber meets the road and you better be really certain of something. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you better be certain that either you are not going to exist anymore and that there is no hell and that you just cease to exist. Like you better be certain of that when, when you're facing death, because life that's a known like we know what life looks like when and yeah we can live with questions all day long but i just don't think that most people are willing to die with questions you know yeah i think that's where it gets to be a lot more of an uncomfortable conversation to have and and man i yeah like you said that would just what a what a terrible way to live so man we can you know we can see them with i don't know if pity is the right word but just compassion yeah compassion yeah yeah, yeah. and that compassion comes through I I can't think of anything more persuasive than the beauty of our gospel mm-hmm. with a compassionate Christian giving the gospel. Like mm-hmm. the, there's nothing to me that's more persuasive than that. Mm-hmm. And and the Lord gives the opportunity to have that conversation. And the person who came to church at my friend's church was someone who had asked a lot of questions and when we talked with him afterwards, just I think the tone And there's a safety needed to have that conversation. These are eternal questions. People want to feel safe in having those conversations. And so I think that's why we see so many people fleeing from unhealthy churches into this this mindset because they at least feel safe and welcomed. And granted, that's an experiential and emotional thing, but it's still an important human thing. And if we as Orthodox, biblically Orthodox believers can provide that kind of compassion and safety Mm -hmm. for those conversations, I think we're going to see a really good shift in how, how this works out. Yeah. That sounds like, I think this is just a saying, but it's like, people don't remember what you said, but they remember how you made them feel Mm, Yeah, like that, you know, that kind of idea of, yeah. I mean, and Jesus was compassionate. Jesus was extremely compassionate to the woman caught in adultery and, you know, all of the people that he encountered, like he didn't come at them with a hard line and, you know, not that he didn't speak truth and actually say, go and sin no more, but he came to them first off really in more of an identifying way. And he like, he saw them like, Hey, I actually know you. I see that you have had all these husbands and you're not even with the one that you're married to now. And you just like, just, Oh my gosh, like, you know me, or you get it, or you, there's something there that identifies with someone before it seeks to throw them under the bus, you know, with truth or whatever. Yeah. And I think of Nicodemus who came to him at night because he was so afraid Mm -hmm. of what, 
people would say about him. And I think that's another thing to consider when you're talking to someone who is coming out of this world, this mindset, for them to engage with you betrays a lot of what may be said about them in that community. Now, the progressive Christianity is in general, a very accepting and open kind of community because that's like what they try to be. But for somebody to be even open to conservative Christianity again, or for the first time is that's dangerous ground because it's considered to be like close-minded and exclusive. So I look at how Jesus interacted with Nicodemus who came questioning and afraid of what people would say about him, afraid of the loss maybe of his position. And um, he was so compassionate and he so gently explained the gospel to him yeah. and tried to make it like, look, this is, this is the, how it works and met with him and talked to them. It's he's just, Jesus is a great example of how to defend Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's such so good. Yeah. He, he wasn't like, Wow, coming to me at night. Look at you, buddy. You're super confident, aren't you? You know, yeah. He could have he could have done so much more damage, but he didn't. Oh man. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me about this. I think it's just really helpful to hear from someone who's who has kind of been at ground zero with a lot of this stuff. And, you know, like you said, we're not encouraging anyone to go take a class, but start with some of those resources that you mentioned, like the books, you know, The Case for Christ and some of the other ones. I'll link everything in the show notes so people can find those. And where can people find you and connect with you online? My website is FeliciaMasonheimer.com. And my name is spelled kind of funny. It's P-H-Y-L-I-C-I-A. And then my most popular spot for discussions is Instagram. And I'm at Felicia Masonheimer there. And then I have a Facebook page where a lot of my articles get shared. And that's Mm -hmm. Felicia Masonheimer. Okay, great. And if people want to go watch, you know, some of the things that you were learning in that class, you have a couple highlight bubbles on Instagram that are called Progressive and Progressive 2. Yes. They can go watch what I was watching real time three weeks ago. So (laughs) thank you so much, Felicia. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Haley. Thank you guys so much for listening. Next week, be sure and come back. I'm going to be chatting with Alexandra Kirkendall all about that elephant in the room, that thing that is coming up that you can't avoid the holidays. No, I'm just kidding. I actually love the holidays, but let's be real. They're always filled with a little bit of stress too. So I chatted with Alexandra about loving our actual Christmas and your actual holiday. This is an awesome episode full of practical advice and tips from a mom who's been there and gets it and actually wrote a book on it. So be sure and come back next week, you guys. Until then, I hope you come say hi to me on Instagram. My uh, handle there is Haley Williams. Dot kindled. Leave a review on iTunes if you get an extra 60 seconds. I would love that so much. And let me share a recent one that was posted from Tiffany Shea 2013. Tiffany says, if you are a mama or just a woman in general, this is a great podcast. Haley speaks truth of the gospel and encourages in a way to draw you closer to Christ. She always brings guests on who give great advice and have great knowledge to share. I highly recommend this podcast to everyone. You will walk away each time enlightened, encouraged, and more equipped to handle this life. Well, thank you, Tiffany. Generous words, and I appreciate that. I hope you guys have an awesome week, and until next Monday, have a great week.